Would you remain standing for the reading of God's word? Our passage this morning is Hebrews 8, verses 1 through 13. We've had a few weeks off from our Hebrew series as we celebrated Easter and had a, a guest preacher last week. The author has just spoken about how Jesus is the great high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And now we'll begin to unpack what that means for God's people and what that means for us. I'll be reading verses 1 through 13 of Hebrews 8. Let's listen to God's word together, asking that he would bless. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See, that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant has been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says... Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. As I said in Hebrews 7, Jesus is shown to be a great high priest, a priest in the order of Melchizedek, which is better than and greater than the old priesthood. And in that passage, we are told that there is a new covenant, a new way of doing things for God's people. And so now we come to unpack why this is a better covenant, what the new thing is that Jesus has come to do as this great high priest in the order of Melchizedek. We'll unpack these passages, these verses together. But let's ask that the Lord would help us understand. Dear gracious God, who loves us and cares for us, who has given us your word this morning, would your spirit be with us? Lord, I'm taking a deep breath 
because I feel the weight of your word and the inability to fully convey it in my human weakness. Lord, would your spirit be poured out on us afresh? That our hearts would be softened to your truth, that you would quicken our minds to understand, that you would enable our souls and all of our lives to respond with glory and obedience. In Jesus' name, amen. Proverbs are really great tools. Pithy, concise ways to remember general truths that we can apply in our lives to help us live life well. But the thing about Proverbs is they don't work every time. They're general truths, but they aren't necessarily universal truths. You might know the one, a penny saved is a penny earned. The good truth is that you are doing something useful when you save a penny. Here's the thing, though. When inflation is outstripping interest rates, a penny saved is not really a penny earned, it's a penny lost. It doesn't always work. Even Scripture acknowledges this. When we go to the book of Proverbs and read Proverbs chapter 26, verses 4 and 5, we see that sometimes... You're supposed to answer a fool when he says something foolish, lest they think themselves wise in their own eyes. But other times, it's the last thing you want to do to answer a fool because you're just going to be dragged into a quagmire with that person. Which brings me to a third proverb. A bird in the hand is better than two in the bush. Prudence is not giving up what you have now in the attainment of what you might not be able to get. You have this bird now, and this is potentially the context of hunting for your dinner. You have a bird now. Why risk losing it to chase after two other birds that are in the bush that you don't have now? But what if those two birds in the bush are fully available? You have them surrounded. You have a net. They're not going to escape. Is it better to hold on to the one bird, the thing that you have in your hand now, because it's comfortable, because it's tangible, because it's known, when two are available to you? Sometimes when something better is offered, we hold on to what we have in the moment, because it's familiar, because it's comfortable, it's unsurprising, it seems under our control, And the alternative seems risky, even if it isn't risky. Now, two birds over one, even if we're talking about a turkey for Thanksgiving, it's not a huge loss if you don't pursue these two birds by holding on to the one. But what if we are holding on to something that is destined to fade away? What if the one thing that we are grasping, as opposed to the two that we are seeking, is something that we can't actually hold on to? What if it's destined to rust? What if it's destined to tear? What if it's destined to turn to dust? Maybe some of you have had this experience. You have an old piece of technology that is really familiar to you. But then over time it becomes obsolete. They stop supporting it. And suddenly this thing that you know is no longer useful to you anymore. And you've missed the opportunity to update and become familiar with the new. The point is, what if what you think you have in your hand, you really don't? 
And for the Hebrews who are struggling to follow Jesus in the midst of persecution, in the midst of the difficulties of life, are seeking to hold on to the old way of things, to the sacrificial system, to going to the temple, to the old laws. They, they, they know Jesus is right. They know Jesus is good. They follow Jesus, but they want to hold on to what they know. The author of Hebrews is saying, not only is Jesus better, not only is he a better priest than the Levitical priests who are working in the priesthood now, in the temple now, but if you continue to hold on to this old way, you will find it vanishing. The end of our passage says, In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. In one sense, it's ready to vanish away because God has said, this is not the way that you are to approach me anymore. But on the other hand, in God's providence and history, the temple will be destroyed. And it has not yet been rebuilt. Almost 2,000 years later, there are not priests offering sacrifices in the temple in Jerusalem anymore. It has literally become obsolete. It has literally vanished away. The preacher has shown how Jesus is a great high priest, how he surpasses Aaron, how he is a better priest. But the point of this is that this greater priest is not meant to minister in the lesser temple. He's addressing this fact, well, if Jesus is such a great high priest, why isn't he down in Jerusalem in the temple offering sacrifices for us, praying on our behalf in the temple? If he's a real priest, he would be in the real temple. And this is where the author makes his move. Jesus is in the real temple. What we have in Jerusalem is a shadow. It's like a model. It's like what I can see out the window, not to distract you, but there are RC cars racing around the field across the road from us right now. Those are not NASCARs that you can go up to New Hampshire Motor Speedway to see. They are just a model. And we read here that the temple in which they ministered was based on the image of the true tent, the true place where God dwells, the true place where Jesus ministers. Because Jesus didn't come to revive and reform an old pattern. He came to fulfill and surpass. And now he ministers in the true tent. The old tent, the old temple being a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Jesus is a great high priest who comes not to conform to the old ways, but to be our priestly mediator and the mediator of a new covenant. A mediator is a go-between. He's a representative who stands in on behalf of a party or a group of people. We're told that not only is Jesus ministering in the heavenly temple, in the true temple upon which the earthly temple is just a shadow, is just a picture, but he is changing the whole system. And if we try to hold on to the old system, if we try to hold on to the earthly temple and the earthly way of doing things, if we try to hold on to that one bird, we're going to miss the two in the bush that Jesus is offering in himself. 
And so the question this morning is, are we looking to Jesus to just bless our old ways, our familiar ways, what we are holding in our hands right now? Or are we willing to lay those things at his feet in trust and worship that what he is offering is truly better and more worthwhile for us? For the Hebrews, it was the Old Testament sacrificial system. For us, it's what our family traditions say is valuable and important. It's what the advertisements on TV say are necessary for flourishing in life. It's what we've been taught about sexuality. It's what we've learned and imbibed from growing up in old patterns. And much of what is good in this world is shaped on the truest good of what God has designed, the goodness of relationships, the goodness of marriage, the goodness of work, the goodness that God has given in the world. But are we holding on to those things in such a way that we will miss out on what God intends to do with them through Jesus? The risen Jesus who sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven in the true dwelling place of God is the pathway to a new covenant. That is a new relationship with God, a new agreement, a new arrangement with God. Believers are saying, well, what is this new covenant? What does that mean? We're going to look at what is being offered here in Jesus by saying, well, what's old? What's new here? And what's borrowed? I'm not going to look at anything blue. But what's old? If the old is being replaced, if Jesus is offering us something new, what's old? Look at verses 8 to 9 with me if you can. Verse 8. This is quoting from Jeremiah chapter 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. The old covenant is the covenant that was given through Moses to the people. When God delivered them out of Egypt, he promised them that they would be his people and he would be their God. And in Exodus 19, it sets up that covenant. God says, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my covenant and, and obey my voice, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God had rescued them, and he said, I am intending for you blessed relationship, a blessed status, if you keep my covenant, if you obey me. I give this to you. Now hold on to it by obeying me. And when we read scripture over and over again, we see when God offers us a blessing dependent on our ability to hold on to it, what do we do? We let it go. Adam and Eve had all the blessings in Eden in the garden and they wanted to grasp at one other thing and they lost what they had. God's people were given the promised land and yet they turned to idols instead of the God who gave it to them. Even in Jeremiah's time when he writes of this new covenant of God's promise to them he does so uh, under the reign of Josiah, a good king, a king who had 
seen the law recovered and had promised, had pledged, had covenanted. We are going to follow God the way that he's supposed to be followed. And yet we read in Jeremiah 3, 11, Faithless Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Treacherous being one who has said one thing and done another. Judah, you are claiming that you're going to follow me. You are claiming that you're going to obey me. And maybe Josiah meant it, but the people, they are merely paying lip service. Ever since the exile, the attempts at reform were not enough. Even God's people came back. Even the Pharisees, who tried to lead the people in obedience, were unable to lead the people in full obedience such that they were not enjoying their status. The system is crumbling because humanity cannot keep up its end of the covenant. God says, I want you to enjoy the blessing of being my people, of being a royal priesthood. Just obey. And they don't, and we don't. And so the blessings of that covenant are fading away because the conditions are not being met. That's what's crumbling away. That's what needs to go. Now there is another aspect of this covenant that is old. And by old I mean something that is going to carry into the new. Because what we have in the new covenant that we're going to unpack in a few minutes is not something completely new and different from the old It's going to carry something true from the old. In Exodus 19, part of the promise was that God had brought the people to himself. And the promise is that they would enjoy the blessing of knowing God. And then here in Jeremiah 31, what does he promise? He says, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And in Revelation 21, at the end of scripture, we hear... Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Old in the sense of what is ongoing and intended is the substance of the covenant relationship with God. But what is fading away in the old is the means of how to enjoy relationship of God. If it is dependent on your obedience, on you following the ceremonial law, on you keeping my word perfectly, you can see how that is fading away. But what God offers is not. And so he offers that same substance in a new way. This is the kindness of God to strip away a means to the good when we can't achieve it that way. See parents doing this with children, teachers with students, bosses with employees all the time. You set a goal for them and say, this is what I want you to do. And when they keep failing, does a good teacher, does a good parent, does a good boss say, well, you failed, you didn't do that right, you didn't reach the goal, so I'm done with you. No, if the goal of learning to read, if the goal of learning to tie your shoes, if the goal of being a productive worker is a good goal, you will find another means to help them achieve that goal. And God in his kindness says, if it's dependent on you, I'm going to remove any sense in which it's dependent on you. 
God isn't unkind, but wants us to offer a better way in Christ. So what's new? We're told that this is a new covenant that replaces, that supersedes the old. Because within it are superior, better promises. And starting in verse... uh, Sorry, it says, it's a new covenant in verse 6. God has obtained a ministry, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant. He mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. So let's look at the promises in the new covenant. What he is offering us. When we read, starting in verse 10 of these promises, we see three promises. We see knowledge of God's law, We see an experience of God, and we see forgiveness. We're going to look at these three promises. First, there is a promise of the knowledge of God. It says in verse 10, I will put my law into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts. Now, we might start by saying, well, you know, this this gives us the opportunity to know God's word. We can memorize, we can internalize God's word. Here's the thing. Most New Testament Christians, most New Covenant mature believers, know, have memorized less Scripture than a preteen under the Old Covenant. The Jewish system took seriously God's word in Deuteronomy 6, that they should know God's commands, that you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. They took that seriously and so they taught and they memorized and they dwelt on God's word. What this isn't is a picture of us saying, okay, here's information about what God wants. Here's information about God's law. I'm going to put it inside me. No, the promise is that God will put his laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. That rather than internalizing knowledge of God, there will be an intrinsic knowledge of God. We will automatically understand what is right and good. We will automatically want to do what God wants from us. Second promise, experience. No longer will the people teach their neighbor, saying, Know the Lord, and his brother, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the lesser of them to the greatest. Consider how the Old Testament people knew God. They knew God in a mediated way. They knew God as he revealed himself, but through things. God spoke through a burning bush. God spoke his law through prophets like Moses, warned the people through other prophets like Ezekiel and Daniel. God sent messengers, angels, to tell people about God. The ability to come into God's presence in the temple was through the priesthood, and even then God's people were only in his seemingly direct presence once a year during the Day of Atonement when a special high priest after special ritual, went behind the curtain. Knowledge of God was always mediated. Someone had to bring you to God. Someone had to show you God. Someone had to tell you about God. But God is promising in this new covenant a direct and immediate experience of God. 
Revelation 21 gives us a sense of what God is promising. And the city has no need of the sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. This picture is we won't need artificial light because the light of God's glory will fill the world. Another image from Revelation 7, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and language were worshiping at the throne of the Lamb who died. A day is coming, a promise is offered where we won't just know about God. We won't just be told about God. We will be in God's presence. And not just us, not just our neighbors and our brothers, but the people from every tribe, nation, and tongue will know God. And this will be possible because of the third promise, forgiveness. In the old system, people offered sacrifice. But God's people continued to be in their sin. And as we're told in verse 9, it caused God to disregard his people. Verse 9 says, For they did not continue in my covenant, so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. So Israel and Judah, they went into exile. They suffered for their disobedience. They were not enjoying the promises and the blessings that they had been promised because they fell short. But in the new covenant, there will be forgiveness of sins. God will not remember the past so that we will be able to enjoy the fullness of knowing him and walking in his ways. Full forgiveness. Even the prophets had to warn the people that the sacrifices they offered were not what forgave them but God. And here God promises mercy and forgiveness. These promises surpass what was offered in the Old Testament. There in the Old Testament, they are partial, they are preparatory. But just as the temple cannot hold a candle to the heavenly, real dwelling place of God, so the promises in the Old Covenant are so gloriously surpassed by what is offered in the New. This is the New Covenant that Jesus comes to mediate. He's not a high priest who comes to refurbish the old, but to provide for the new and surpassing promises. Old covenant, good but not enough. New covenant, far superior. Jesus comes to give this new covenant. These are the promises that God is offering his people. Great. How do we get those promises? We talk about ourselves as Christians as new covenant people. The things that come out of my mind and out of my mouth are not always the law and the ways of God. I don't always feel as if God is present with me. And this brings us back to how the new covenant is different because it is not dependent on what we have done but on what Christ does for us as our great high priest. That is why this third point is described as something borrowed. Our ability to experience the promises of the new covenant come through what Jesus has done for us. Consider this first promise. The promise that we will know God's law and his word. Hebrews, at the very beginning of this book, has argued that Jesus is the superior messenger. 
that he is greater than the prophets. He is superior to the angels, the messengers of God. It tells us in verse 1 of chapter 1, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. And John 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. As Jesus taught, the crowds recognized that he taught with authority, unlike the teachers and the scribes and the Pharisees. It wasn't something he received and then passed on. It was his word, his law he spoke to the crowds. The ability for us to have God's law written on our hearts is because of Jesus' heart that is given to us, from which flows every wisdom, every law, every instruction from God. Because we have Jesus, by faith in him, we have the ability to understand God's law because Jesus is the law. He is the word. He is the instruction of God. And he sends his spirit into our hearts to change our hearts, to instruct us of everything that Jesus teaches us. We are now able to know the word and will of God because we are made new by the Spirit of Christ, the Son of God, who is the very word of God. Second promise, experience. Jesus mediates and gives us a new covenant promise because he is God. We can know God because in Jesus, God is fully known. Hebrews 1.3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. At the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, Thomas said, on the night before Jesus went to the cross, he said, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and still you do not know me? Philip, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is the mediator. He is the guarantor of the new covenant and the new promises because in him, when we know Christ, we know God. Hebrews 6.19, we read this a few weeks ago. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Jesus has gone behind the curtain in the temple to the Holy of Holies where God's glorious presence dwells as a forerunner before us to one day bring us into that same place. Jesus who knows God the Father because he is God the Son offers that we might come into the full knowledge and presence of God because of who he is. Jesus offers us his heart from which beats the word of God. He offers us his direct experience and knowledge of God. And lastly, he offers us forgiveness. We are told that God will remember our sins no more because in the place of our sins will be the righteousness of Jesus. We've been reading how Jesus is a great high priest, better than the Aaronic priest. Why is he better? Because he doesn't offer any sacrifices for himself. He doesn't fall into sin. He is the once and for all perfect sacrifice on our behalf. And so in the offering of himself, we have him. 
When God looks at us, He sees not what we have failed to do, but what Jesus has done in our place. His perfect obedience. His sacrificial offering of Himself on our behalf. Brothers and sisters, we can look at these promises of the new covenant and say, I I can't get these. I don't know God's word. I disobey. I don't always feel like God is present to me. I know my sins and I can't forget my sins. How can God claim to forget my sins? But here is the wonderful good news of the new covenant that unlike the old where it is dependent upon us to come to know God and keep his commands, God says, I fulfill the promises for you in Christ who gives us that fulfillment in himself. We have these promises from God fulfilled in Jesus who represents us to God so that we can have them in part now and be fully assured that they will be ours when we enter into glory with him. I'll just be honest, this was a hard week uh, in the hard household, and one that shouldn't necessarily have been so difficult. Many of you know that Wednesday we celebrated the adoption of Ashley as a permanent part of our family, and we rejoiced. But in the midst of that bright spot, I I will just admit there was a lot of shadow and cloud in my own soul this week. Impatience, unhappiness. And in talking about it with Rebecca and reflecting on it, what I began to realize was that I was looking to my work. I was looking to my marriage. I was looking to my kids. I was looking to the offer of spring and being out in creation as things that would satisfy. As things that would make me happy. But my kids weren't making me happy. My marriage wasn't making me happy. My work wasn't making me happy. The weather wasn't making me happy. I was seeking fulfillment in promises that I did not have the power to attain. And this is really what we have all been taught we are made these promises that you can work hard 50 hours a week for a good paycheck. Then you can take care of your body and experience fitness and beauty. That you can find time to relax and go on wonderful vacations. That you can enjoy meaningful relations with all kinds of people. That you can be politically active. You can be a responsible citizen of the world cleaning up pollution. You can be this and this and this and find fulfillment, find purpose, find glory, find happiness in all these things. Those promises are made and we repeat those promises to ourselves and others. But those promises are so unfulfilling because we don't have the power to achieve them. I can't make my kids make me happy. I can't make my work make me happy. I can't make my recreation make me happy. And so we are told to stop grabbing so tightly to these things that are turning to dust and grab onto Jesus 
Because the joy in relationship, the joy in work, the joy in creation, the joy in relationships, the goodness, beauty, and truth in all these things finds its fulfillment in Jesus. And the only way to enjoy these things and have the fullness for which they were designed is to have Jesus fulfill their purpose for us. I can't enjoy the promises of people of position of prestige if it's dependent on me, but if I am dependent on Jesus and what he wants for me, then I can have that joy. Not all of you are baseball fans, but most of you are aware that with spring comes baseball, with spring comes opening day. And I even think that Boston is doing pretty well right now. And what a greater experience of spring and baseball is there to go to the stadium on opening day, to go and get yourself a nice beer, to get yourself a hot dog, and to enjoy the game, right? That's not as fulfilling for all, but if you're about baseball, that's how you find fulfillment at a baseball game. And yet, what happens when the star player gets up to bat and lines up on that fastball and sends it sailing 350 feet in your direction. You have, in one hand, your $8 beer. You have, in your other hand, your $15 hot dog. You have, in your knees, your $6 Cracker Jacks. Hot dog, beer, Cracker Jacks, spring day, this is how you enjoy baseball. But what's coming at you? That home run. What are you going to do? with that $30 worth of food. You're going to let it fall to the ground so that you can have a chance to grab that home run. Because that is the fullness of baseball and opening day is to catch that home run. Brothers and sisters, Jesus doesn't come so that we can have a partial enjoyment of the promises of family, of friends, of health, Jesus came to fulfill what we could not get for ourselves. He asks us to stop trying to hold on to us grabbing at our family, grabbing at our jobs, grabbing at our health, so that we can hold on to him. Who as the mediator of the covenant, as the one that fulfills everything required of God, we might know God, we might know his ways, we might have an eternal relationship with him, who is the giver of all these good things. So let us hold lightly to what we have now and cling to Christ that our hands might be full of the promises of God. Let's pray. Jesus, you come to offer us something better, something better than we promise to ourselves and to one another, something better than us trying to lay hold of your promises, you obey, you fulfill what is required of us, and then you give us all the blessing of God's promises in yourself. Thank you that you are the one that represents us before the Father forever. Thank you that you are the one that fully knows him, that you are the one that fully obeys him, and that you fully offer your righteous life in place of ours. Help us not to cling to what is fading away, but to what is forever new in you. Amen.